Hey, Barry, how are you? I'm good. Hey, doing Eve. Rick, you there yet? Yep. Hey, guys. Hey, Rick. Uh, so I wanted to talk to you guys today because we wrapped up our gaming program today, and it made me think about a student I had in last year's game design program uh, named James, who came in uh, loving dinosaurs, but then when we went out to do our bird watching, because this program focused on birds and games, he complained nonstop. I mean, it was 45 minutes of, it's too hot out and my feet hurt and all this other kind of stuff. It was, I mean, it was terrible. I, I've had that uh, kid before. <laughs> we probably all have had this kid before. Um, but, you know, at the end of that program, through taking two weeks to build a game about birds, he, he became very interested in, in birds. It was really quite a change. So, wait. So, what happened was he didn't like birds before, right. and then he made a game about birds, and now he likes birds. He loves them. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I, I I don't know, and I think that's the question is, did he always have the secret love of birds or was it through building a game about birds that he came to love them or something else? I don't know. And I think that's what we're going to explore today is, is game-based learning in museums. And we hope that you join us as we explore. What does digital learning look like in a collections-based museum? Oh, oh. Find out now on Object Oriented, the podcast. Welcome to episode two of Object Oriented. Uh, this second episode, we're going to explore some of the ideas of game-based learning. We're going to start with a couple of excerpts from play guru Bernie DeCoven, and then we're going to look at some examples from our own institutions. But we should start by introducing ourselves. So this is Rick Pang and Eben. I am the senior manager of what we call digital learning at the California Academy of Sciences in San Francisco, and we're also joined by my colleagues. And I'm Eve Gauss. I'm at the Field Museum, and I am a digital learning manager. And I'm Barry Joseph at the American Museum of Natural History here in New York City, and I'm the Associate Director for Digital Learning. So there are many things that we could talk about today in regards to games and learning, like talking about games, I mean, making videos about games. Um, but for this episode, we're really going to focus on learning through designing games, uh, specifically science games, since we're science institutions, uh, made in a museum context. To get us started, we thought we'd begin with this segment from my Mushmi interview with Bernie DeCoven. Bernie's an American game designer, author, lecturer, mensch, and fun theorist. <laughs> he is most notable for his book, The Well-Played Game, and for his contributions to the new games movement, which changed Jim for many young people in the 70s like me. I spoke with him recently about games, play, and museums. I have felt for a long time that the, the game is within, the play is within the thing that we're addressing, not outside. And that, for example, uh, you know, if you talk to a mathematician about mathematics, and I mean a, a real mathematician, they will tell you how much fun mathematics is. They don't need anybody to tell them how to make it fun. They're a mathematician because for them it is fun. And and it is, I don't know if they would use the term game, but they would certainly talk about 
how deeply enjoyable it is, how it transports them, how it allows them to engage their minds and their so fully and deeply and uh, and how exciting it makes it, it gets for them to to be working in mathematics and how meaningful it all is. So for them, a, a good mathematician, uh, a mathematician, um, the the they just they they are they know the fun of it. They know the play of it. I think that's I think that's what I'm trying to say about really everything that 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 if you look at the thing whatever it is that you're doing from the sense of of play and wonder um you'll discover it that's in that's that's the core of that experience uh and if you try to make it more fun by dressing it up or making it look silly or painting clowns on it or whatever. Um, you miss the point. And I think you also mislead people into thinking that, you know, I've got to give you score for doing something that you'd want to do anyhow. I've got to give you a point because you're enjoying yourself. I mean, there's so many things to love about this, but one of them is this very simple idea that science is fun. Um, and that's a really non-trivial thing to say to most people who don't do what we do. Um, and uh, the fact that you can kind of bring together games to, with this awesome experience the scientists get to have, to me, is super powerful. Um, so I'm really intrigued with get how do you get to that thing of understanding the fun part of doing science which is you know eludes most people when they think of what science is about and for me it helps me to think about when designing a new program for young people how not to only think about what we want to teach but how we will teach them and how games can support that but before we get to that uh let's explore why we as natural natural history museums uh should be the site for this sort of educational activity why museums and youth game design <laughs> and that reminds me of something that happened just a few years ago um when i started working at the museum in october of 2013 uh, i'd only been here a month and I was waiting outside our discovery room, the place where kids can do hands-on learning. Mm -hmm. And I saw this uh, young person. He was, I guess he was probably about uh, 10 or 11. And he was wearing a T-shirt from an after-school organization that I knew about where he could do coding. So I thought I would just ask him about it. And after he told me about the fun time he had coding, um, I thought I would share with him an idea I had. Um, I knew coming into the museum that I wanted to do something with Minecraft. I'd already used it in an after-school context. I saw how powerful it was. And I didn't know what we were going to do here at the museum, but I thought, wow, we got to use Minecraft. I'm going to share this with this young person who clearly likes doing digital stuff already, and I want to see how excited he gets. So I said to him, hey, do you play Minecraft? And he looked at me. He's like, yeah, of course I play Minecraft. And I said, what would you think about us doing a program here at the museum with Minecraft? And he just stared at me blank for a moment and looked at me like I'd offered him a chicken head or something. He's like, why would this museum do anything with Minecraft. I thought I was going to tell him about something that I was so excited about that was going to be great and he was going to love it. And instead, the idea of doing games in a museum context didn't make sense to him. Yes, of course he loved games, but bringing them into the museum context, that was something he wasn't ready to make it to transition in his mind. Hmm. 
And Barry, I think that's the perfect question is why, why teach game design in natural history museums? I mean, what do we bring to the process as museum educators? Uh, That's a great question. I think there's a lot of ways that we can approach that. I think for, um, the, I think within the history of museums and thinking about how we have figured out to engage visitors in an informal or interest-driven learning context, we've created and come up with all sorts of things from, you know, audio guides in the 50s and 60s mm-hmm. to, to activity guides with processing questions to things on the wall that say look closer to, and digital interactives, that when we start thinking about games and museums, we can contextualize it within that history and how we've figured out how to create not just using the things that people like to do outside the museum, but understanding the very mechanics of, of engagement and learning. Yeah, I mean, definitely there's a whole legacy of different kinds of experiences that museums have, have tried to do, I guess, to uh, engage people with the, with the, the, the messaging and the, the education that they're hoping is happening. Um, on the other hand, I think there's also, like, a, a, a pretty strong legacy that we can all talk about of bad games or bad oh, attempts yeah. at bringing gaming experiences into museums that just kind of sucked. Frankly, and so I think that uh, there's both the um, there's the positive aspects of it, and there's things where we we really need to to be really thoughtful about when we do this. It's not it's not just a magic bullet. That there's ways to do uh, the lessons of game design within a museum context that that makes sense, and there's a lot of ways that don't make sense. Um, and that there's 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 both ends, right? Yeah, for sure. And I think I mean, one thing I, I think is so interesting about museums being involved in gaming is because I think on the surface, it doesn't make sense. I mean, you think it, <laughs> right? I mean, if we look at like who's doing games, I mean, they're very like nimble, super tech oriented startups that are, you know, all out by where Rick is and something like that. And, you know, I think if you ask someone of natural history museums, the first thing they'll talk about are like, oh, the dioramas with all the stuffed animals. And so I think us playing in this space is is really great and I, I i can't wait to see more museums playing in this space because i think we absolutely belong here yeah, eve i couldn't agree with you more i think uh what you're saying is so right yes we belong here and at the same time it means we have to change people's expectations outside the museum space to see us as, as valid players at the same time i think what's interesting is how we have to change expectations within our institutions i had a curator um approach me uh a few months before one of his exhibits opened up. And I think he was half joking, but he said to me, where's my game? Because he knew that I was doing work with young people where we were making games related to the exhibits. I thought, what a game changer, <laughs> pun intended, right? Oh For somebody within the museum to be thinking about, we expect to have them versus no, this is something that doesn't belong here. And I think that's exciting. And so one of those things that are an answer to your earlier question, you know, why teach game design in natural history museums? It gives us an opportunity to have our young people work with scientists and help them think about non-traditional ways to engage uh, educating the public about them using games as a modality. No, totally. And I think that um, I, I think I came off a little bit negative there in my, my last comment. And I do want to say museums are awesome places and we have a lot of awesome things that uh, can contribute to some really powerful game experiences. So we have, as Barry said, we have these scientists who are, who are subject matter experts. We have uh, our, our collections. We have uh, an awesome space that people are excited to be in a lot of times. So putting that all into the mix of game design, I think, 
can be really powerful isn't isn't always really powerful but can be really powerful can be the potential's there yeah agreed <laughs> i think the 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 really interesting thing is the ability it gives students to really explore our collections from a different perspective um the collections isn't something that's just something there to be looked at but it's they're thinking about how to use it or how to manipulate it or how to teach other people about the collections and i think giving students that lens of just hey not just hey look at these things but hey look at these things and think about how do you then transform them or transmit that information about them you know gives them that perspective and that lens to then uh to dive deeper into them that they might not otherwise be able to do so eve you're talking about what the the youth get out of being involved with games and museum that's a great question what are some other things we think youth get out of being involved in game making in our museums well, I, I mean, I think the the biggest thing about youth is that um, the most powerful thing about teens making games at museums is it really puts teens in the seat of the expert of the museum. I mean, they're the ones who are, who are taking that information and then pushing it out to a different audience. And you know, they have to understand that information. They have to be able to build a game that's scientifically or culturally accurate to then be able to disseminate it. And I think that's very powerful to say, hey, you are the voice of the museum through this game. I think that's huge. Yeah, that, that's great. That's great. One of the things I've seen with, with using games and gameplay and game design in the museum is that it often becomes the entry point into informal science learning for youth who otherwise would never have imagined themselves coming here. They come for the game, but they leave with a new interest in, you know, fill in the blank, you know, astrophysics, anthropology, uh, uh, biology, paleontology. So it starts with a game, but it becomes like in your story in the beginning that you told us, Eve, it becomes their entry point to a new area of, uh, of knowledge and passion. Mm-hmm. So I guess the question that I have from the teen experience side is, like, there's a lot of things that that could be, right? It could be a, a, a painting a canvas, a, 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 a painting a mural, or it could be hacking. It could be a lot of different kinds of experiences that get kids excited about being in your space and learning science. So is there something about making games that is particularly powerful uh, on the youth engagement side? Well, one of the things that I think about uh, around what youth learn by learning about games is the design processes. They learn iterative design. They learn about prototyping. They learn about user testing. Um, that's powerful learning, and doing that in a, a context where they're learning science is, is doubly powerful. So I've, we've all done a lot of different kinds of programs. So whenever I do a games program, I know that I get a, a very high level of, of engagement from the beginning, uh, uh, where kids are just super excited about the idea of making games for various reasons. They play games, they, they want to be a programmer or whatever. So there's like this automatic enthusiasm. And then once you get in the weeds, it's really hard, right? Like anyone can yes. like sort of come up with, you know, a game idea or whatever. And you go like, no, but you got to meet all these objectives. It's got to be playable by these kind of players. It's got to be playable within a certain time frame. It has to include this content. And they all go like, oh, crap, that's really hard. And then they – but it's that, you know, what we're starting to talk about as a good hard. It's a it's the level of challenge that they want to rise up to meet. It's not like, oh, this is impossible. I don't want to do it. They go like, how do we make this happen? Um, so that's that's what I think that's interesting about games is that it you, you can start very quickly, but it quickly has a quick ramp up to, like, how the heck are we going to do this? Yeah, it's hard work, but it's often giving young people a, a different avenue for, for approaching the content. You know, game design is often system design, and nature is full of systems. You can draw a diagram of the water cycle, or you can be a drop of water and experience the system from the inside out within a game. So the game design, in our case, the youth, need to understand how the system works to build it as a game. I agree, and I, I really think that games... Um as opposed to other, you know, media we might produce, like movies or something like that, are um, 
And they're more relational because when you're designing a game, you have to both think about what is the what are you planning for your game, what's your vision for your game, but then also how, how is your player going to actually play that game? What routes are they going to take? How are they actually going to achieve that information? User-based design. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that games push our learners to be both producers and consumers. For sure. Hmm. And do you guys find that you get a lot of kids who are coming into it because they want to make games as a as a as a pathway to a career, or they, that they get excited to go like, oh, I really want to be a game designer as a result of doing these programs? <laughs> well, the youth in the Minecraft program, yes, they think they're going to become game designers. Whether <laughs> we think they're on that path or not, that's something else. <laughs> I mean, I think it's a healthy mix. Like we just no more than two hours ago wrapped up a game program here at the museum and. Um, you know, some of the, some of our teens came cause they really, they were passionate about the content and some of them really came cause they cared about the games. And I think at the end, you, my hope is that there's a, you know, a healthy mix of both and an appreciation of both. Yeah. Here in, um, here in the Bay area, of course, we have a number of games companies that are just, you know, a mile or so away from, from our museum. So of course, a lot of them think about that. They may know people who already work in the games industry. So, uh, getting to them into the the, the, the hard work of doing it can be both exciting and discouraging at the same time. They're like, oh, wow, this is actually really, really technical or really, really hard to do well. Or they find to other, there are parts of the game design process they didn't know about in terms of the, the script writing or the art direction or the marketing. Um, that, that Then that becomes the thing that they want to do. So there's definitely a, a more nuanced approach to thinking about what it might look like to work in the, in, in, uh, in the games field. So we've been talking a little bit about uh, kind of up here at the sort of conceptual level about uh, our teens and how we work with them. But maybe we should get a little bit more specific about what are some of the actual programs that we've done um, that uh, really have impacted our teens by using game design and science. Um, so, yeah, let's look at some, some, some of the programs that we're doing. Cool. So, I mean, I mentioned that we just wrapped up a gaming program today, which I think I need a little bit more time to reflect on uh, before talking about that. It's still just, oof, it's nice just to sit down finally. Um, but, you know, if I'm thinking about, so I'll think about a program that we did last year. And, you know, we've really been focusing on gaming with our middle school audience quite a bit. And um, last year we ex- we explored mobile-based gaming. Um, and, and we just called this game, you know, this was just our middle school gaming workshop. We'll just call it that. And as I mentioned at the top of the program, we were really investigating birds, um, which uh, I will tell you was a change. The first year we did it, we investigated soil. And let me tell you, middle schoolers don't enjoy soil. So. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> and, you know, we thought worms and bugs and creepy crawl. No, absolutely not. They were so unhappy with soil. Don't do soil. Uh, so, and, you know, was kind of like lessons learned from year one to year two is, is looking at the importance when we're doing game-based learning in a museum is, uh, you know, we always like to really push youth agency at the field museum and giving youth the ability to, uh, to create their own product, to decide what they want to do. We really find in games that you really have to, it's critical to give students, um, scope, of what the game should look like, how many obstacles there should be in the game, um, what the game mechanics should be, how many missions do you have to go on, what type of game is it, um, to really have a successful gaming program. And 
you know, unlike I think uh, Rick and Barry, your your games, our games are really uh, your gaming programs. Our, our gaming programs are really intended as a uh, not necessarily for like everyone who comes to the Field Museum to play them. It's more meant for the teens to build to explore that content, and then if they were to share them with their friends, you know, or their family, that's great. But we're not necessarily putting these games mm. out. I'll say as of yet, we're not putting these games out as field museum branded games i mean these are more learning experiences for our students hmm. what kind of scale of time are we talking about for these uh, these game programs oh i mean so we've done game programs on a one-week basis and a, on a two-week basis you know and it's like a summer workshop so say nine to three or nine to one something like that hmm. yeah yeah we had a um I mean, definitely, we're on we're on we're on both sides of the fence in terms of the game experience as being a encapsulated part of the youth experience versus the game experience as being the the design experience is something that is going to be playable by the public. Um, one recent example was we had a, a the, at the academy we had a science game jam where we had uh, about eighty young people come to our museum and just for for just an entire day their job was their challenge was to create. Uh, some kind of game that they worked on as a team uh, that was around a science topic that they were going to start to learn about that day. Um, in this case, it was whales, which was is one of our exhibits that we have at the Academy, Whales and Whale Ecology and Sustainability Related to Whales. And uh, we had some, so we had a, so we had a bunch of teens, excited teens um, who had never met each other. Most of them, we had some um, games experts that we brought in from the outside community, and then we had our own scientists who were there to be scientists resources for the kids. And then we kind of gave them a certain kind of time-based challenges that they had to do during the day. Um, but of course, they had that sort of stand and deliver moment at the end of the day when they had to pitch their game design to these judges, who then gave out certain certain prizes um and it's the first time we'd ever done anything um, quite like that at that scale um and we certainly learned a lot i think one of the one of the big things we learned was that uh it's really hard to cram all that stuff into one day yeah. and uh so people were like why don't we have uh videos and resources ahead of time that the kids can learn from mm-hmm. why don't we have like a hangout or something they can join if they have questions or extend it beyond the day so that they can keep doing something over the course of a, of a whole weekend um so it's definitely something we're, we're, we're playing with we had a successful launch doing a kind of 10 a.m to 5 p.m experience um but uh, it's a lot, let me tell you, to try and that's a lot of there's a lot of points for failure within the, that 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 could happen if your institution is thinking about something at that level. Do you think, Rick, you're going to be doing another science game jam uh, similar to what you did or, or in implementing some of the lessons learned? Absolutely. It's just a question of the the scale and time frame that it would take to have a successful experience for everybody, for the kids, for the parents, for the volunteers, for the scientists, um, for everybody to, to really feel like it was a, a really solid experience. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're always going to be tweaking it. I think I might want to do it like maybe it's a little bit longer or do a little bit more yeah. prep um, or have some kind of deliverable that they take home with, take home mm-hmm. with them. We did actually a, a, our first game jam this past April. Yeah. Um, but we're all in, uh, invite um, youth learners per se. We specifically brought in game designers who are graduate students in New York. 
And our mission for them was to help us come up with these very quick, light games that people could play with each other to connect with um, the exhibits and fossils in the dinosaur halls. And so that was, a, like you described, like a, a certain number of hours on a particular day where in that time they not only had to create the games, they had to learn all the content. Um, but over the course of the day, we ended up with 40 light games that we're, we're now playing with and, and helping us understand different modes of engagement in the hall. But that wasn't the first time we've done stuff um, with you know, young people and students on those for the public. Uh, last year, we made a, a card game about pterosaurs using content from our pterosaurs exhibit. And then that card game made by the youth with professional game designers was then sold in the store hmm. for people coming out. And that was so interesting for us to see to what extent we can work with youth to not only have an educational program, but to have that be aligned with a product development cycle. And so this year, we have two more card games coming out, one this summer about killer snails, of all things, and one late, <laughs> and one later this fall with uh, about gut flora, the, the micro microbiomes in your stomach, and both of them are with scientists who research that area, and both are connected to exhibits we've had or exhibits that are coming up. So that there's all sorts of opportunities there to um, leverage the interests of scientists, as I mentioned earlier, to get their work out, working with young people and doing it through a gaming context. But by far the biggest thing that we've done here with games with young people deeply involved is the Micro Rangers game. Mm. Micro Rangers isn't even coming out to the end of this year, but we started working on it in spring of last year. We had an after-school program. We met two days a week for three months. Um, and at the end of that process, working with the young people and a particular scientist, they developed the, the prototype for Micro Rangers. And then after people saw the prototype and got excited about it, we received the funds to then bring it to completion this year. So starting in February, we work with a different group of young people, again, uh, two days a week, and that one just ended a few weeks ago. And what we have now is this experience that we can offer visitors where we essentially recruit them to become micro-rangers. And as micro-rangers, we invite them to, to shrink down to microscopic levels to experience our permanent exhibits, um, but from the microscopic scale. And then collaborating with um, uh, uh, microorganisms um, like protists and viruses, and scientists at the macro level, they'll resolve problems that are existing within inside the exhibit. And while they're going from exhibit to exhibit, um, resolving these challenges and learning about science and, and, and how it connects to biodiversity, they'll then start seeing that there's something that connects them all together that's in general about this uh, global story about threats to biodiversity. And they can move from just the kind of f simple focus on just an exhibit to this broader a game where the map of the museum itself becomes a board game. And this is going to be brought together with a, a mobile app um, where the, the, the students will be voicing um, these augmented characters, these protists and whatnot, that will appear as if they're floating in your hand, as well as augmented reality games um, at each of the exhibits where, for example, the bison have gone outside the exhibit and you got to get them back in. <laughs> um, so this is exciting for us in many ways, but for the purposes of, of our, our podcast, the engagement that the youth have had being part of something that the learning isn't just for them, but it's also for, for teaching others. Gives them a sense of ownership over the learning process that, that's really invaluable and helps them do what I think Eve was talking about earlier. Be, see themselves as experts. The, the last group of micro-rangers were very quiet and shy at the beginning of the program. And I see that for most programs. That's usually the first or second session. And then you can't shut them up after that. But this group was quiet the entire time. And we were concerned about how they were going to be able to do their final session, which was a presentation to friends and families and people in the museum. And they were phenomenal. And we had never seen them like that before, not once in the program. But when they had to step up and talk about their work and talk about the game and identify it as theirs, um, but in collaboration with us, um, they really shined. 
Wow, that's really awesome. Um, yeah, so we so we've done a similar project where we had a, a longer extended program where we had a bunch of kids uh, from the kind of ten thousand feet in the uh, sky level think about different forms of science education and engagement, and uh, from you know theater to stop motion to games, and then. Um, narrow in on the thing they wanted to work on as a group over the course of the year. And then once they figured out it was going to be games, then they started to narrow in on the science topic that they wanted to do and and, and uh, got some uh, focus on our scientists on expedition. And then out of all that work over the entire year came the game that they ended up creating, which was um, called Mission Fission, uh, which... I mean, they just love that name because it just, you know, they were really into puns, this group of kids. And uh, basically... Aren't they, they all? They're all kids love puns. Exactly. <laughs> I love puns. The, so these kids really wanted to explore what one of our scientists does when he goes out on expedition and how he collects fish. And he uses uh, what everyone just calls a fish zapper. And and they're like, we need to make this into a game. And they uh, very quickly, like, learned the code that they needed to program. They did the artwork. They did the script writing. They checked the facts. Um, and uh, as a result of that, this game now exists. It's a combined digital game that includes specimens and some theatricality of the kids who are pretending to be that scientist, essentially. And uh, now, is you know, you come to our museum and you see kids on the public floor who are delivering that game to the public, or they're going out to the community and doing it. So it's just part of our range of experiences that our kids have piloted. Now, it is a ton of work, and Barry, I'm sure you could say the same about Micro Rangers, um, getting to that level. So um, you know, to the degree that you can scope it out and give some specificity to the kids. In the uh, uh, instead of giving them such an open playing field like we did, uh, you'll you'll get closer to your, you know, the kids making a, a successful outcome, a successful product. We, you know, it's the first time we did it, so we really wanted to give them as wide of a sandbox as possible. Um, but that's a really hard way to go about it. I'll be really honest with you. Um, it can lead to some great stuff, but you know, you just you just don't know. It's a heavy lift, but if it works well, the potential. It- for impact is tremendous. Mm-hmm. Now, I mentioned Minecraft earlier. We yeah. can't end this podcast without saying something about Minecraft. And in fact, we have Bernie, Bernie DeCoven, to come back again and, and share with us a little bit about what he thinks about Minecraft. You're using Minecraft, which is an inherently, we know that that's a good tool. That's a fun tool. It's an enabling tool because it allows kids to play. You know, it's not, it's not this big rule-based kind of thing it's just kind of it's like a laboratory for exploration and and building and creating and you're using that as a tool for them to explore other kinds of things and it's a natural fit because it's the same kind of mindset that that you want kids to have when they're when they're investigating the natural world the world of of science and and the kinds of things that you hope that they're going to experience when they come into a museum you know, it's perfect for Bernie to be talking about Minecraft that way because to, to game designers, Minecraft isn't even a game. It's a play space. Mm-hmm. And yet so many games are built into Minecraft. You know, people who don't know Minecraft might think of it as a game, but in many ways it's like it's a medium. And we are just beginning to understand what this medium means, not only in the lives of young people, but how we can use it for learning and specifically in our context, informal science learning. 
The first thing we did with Minecraft was spend a day, an entire day with young people, immersing them into an environment that was constructed to mirror one of our exhibits, one of our temporary exhibits. The exhibit was all about food, the science and culture of food. And so our day was called Foodcraft. Right back then, we were still using wah, the Minecraft. Wah, wah. Thank you, right? But it worked. We got them in, and they they spent a few hours doing what people often do in Minecraft. They 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 uh, planted their farms. They they made made use the recipes to make things, make products with that food, and they went to a little uh, market in their village to sell it. And they had to sell a certain amount each day to to feed everyone in their town. We then took them to the exhibit, and they saw in person in the exhibit many of the same concepts they had just been exploring in the game. And we wanted to ask, understand better, would playing something in a game generate a need to know for the youth when they could experience it within the exhibit? But then we went beyond the game in the exhibit and taught them about things like global trade, things they hadn't experienced in the game. And then we took them back into Minecraft, and now global trade existed. And it wasn't just the village anymore. You can now go to the port and sell things that they weren't building, buying in town and bring in ingredients from, from out overseas to make new things to sell in the village. So, again, we're going to flip it back. Could the exhibit generate more interest and knowledge that they can then use inside the game? And we learned all sorts of things over, over that day. And that led us to create an after-school program, Minecraft at the Museum. That was a 20-session program, uh, two days a week. For a number of months, and in many ways, we wanted them to teach us what the possibilities were for using Minecraft to explore science and what it meant to explore science in a museum context and connect it with the exhibits. So, yes, what do you do in Minecraft? One of the things you do is mine. You mine for ores and precious minerals. Well, we have a hall of gems and minerals. We have a hall of planet Earth. And we went back and forth and had them think critically about how is the real world represented accurately or not in Minecraft. And over the sessions, we got to see how they chose to explore something in the museum and then go back into Minecraft to build something and teach others about it. If they wanted to do something about botany, they built a giant sunflower made in an amusement park car ride that took you through it. We took them to our exhibit on poison. They then made the International Center for Poison Detection, where they had little laboratories where they were testing what happens when you put poison on a pig versus when you put poison on a cave spider. Uh, Spoiler, cave spiders don't care. The pigs just get sick, right? They (laughs) built out an entire life cycle experience for Viking, to explore Viking culture. And each time they built something, it was different modalities of gameplay and different modalities of learning. And it was a process that we began, but we honestly haven't finished yet. It's still an open question about what are the best ways to use Minecraft for learning? What are the best ways to use it in an informal learning context when we have to balance the culture and norms for them when they play Minecraft versus what we do in our community for learning? And at the same time, how can Minecraft be used specifically for science? But now that Minecraft's in a whole new world, now that Microsoft has bought it, now that it's, it's gone beyond just you know, single-player network games to this wide world of, of, of videos on YouTube, to um, um, networks where people can log in that are managed by people who have you know, millions of people playing. Uh, it, it's a medium, like I said, and we're just beginning to get a sense of, of what the, the possibilities are. Wow. That is, that is a ton of stuff, Barry. Um, so as you can see, well, the, yeah, I'm always full of it. You know that. <laughs> so as you can see, this uh, this game space learning space is obviously it's enormous. You could we could we could have gone for like a couple more hours, honestly, talking about many different aspects of of uh, using games in your museum with your teens. Um, but maybe we should just close with uh, going around and saying how we keep up with this field and, and keep inspired with what's going on in in in, in games and learning. Barry, what do you do? Well, uh, conferences are very important for me. Okay. Uh, Games for Change in New York, 
Games Learning and Society in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, those are important places for me to connect with people like us who are, are pushing the envelope and exploring what's possible, um, as well as connecting with people who want to work with folks like us, potential funders, uh, game designers. Um, that, that, that's a never-ending source of inspiration and new knowledge for me. But but day-to-day in my regular you know life, the most important thing is definitely my son. I'm, I'm looking here um, at, at my wall where I just posted the thing he gave me on Father's Day. Uh, it says, five things I love about dad. Number one, you play Terraria with me. Terraria is a, a, a game. That's all you need to know. And what he cares about is I play with him. And is Terraria my favorite game? No, but I do like playing it. And most importantly, I love playing it with him. And I love learning how he uses it. And so for understanding games and learning, for me, it's so important to understand what my son is doing with games and how he writes about them for school, how he talks about it with his friends, and how he integrates it into his his the flow of his life. You know, when does he watch videos about games and not just play them? Um, when does he design his own games on paper or get to build them in Minecraft? So for me... Um, um, whether you have a, a child or you have a young person in your life, just connect with them and play with them. And I think there's, there's no better place to learn. Nice. Eve, what about you? Uh, so Chicago has a really rich Hive network. And, um, Go Hive. Are, Go Hive. <laughs> we are, I mean, there's so many wonderful game designers in that network and people who are using and playing with games on a, a regular basis. And so that's such a rich resource because you can not only talk to, you know, folks, our colleagues, but then you can also hear reflections from their teams that they're working with. So, you know, I, I know the experience that our teams have in our programs, but you can also hear about experiences that, you know, a teens at a local art center had with gaming or something like that. So it gives a more diverse lens to kind of look at gaming. Um, and of course, I mean, our teens in our own programs is just talking to them and seeing what they're doing. I mean, like I said, that game program we wrapped up today, it was just amazing to see all the different pathways that our, our learners took with just a single program. So they're, they're a huge resource. Nice. Yeah. I definitely use a lot of those resources as well. Um, using our kids as kind of the the pulse of what, what games are hot now and how people, how they're thinking about games. Um, I'm not, a, I'm not a real gamer myself, so I do a lot, but I do a lot of kind of backseat gaming, I guess you would say, like by watching or reading all the blogosphere about what games are hot or, uh, you know, watching podcasts or watching people do playthroughs of certain kinds of games. Um, so I guess I'm like a spectator of the gaming space. Um, and and I think that's you know that's actually a huge field of of audience now is these sort of channels of media channels where you can just go and watch people playing games and commentating about games that I think is also super interesting. Up now is our regular news of the future segment with Elizabeth Merritt joining us from the Center for the Future of Museums. Welcome, Elizabeth. Hi, Barry, and hello, Rick and Eve. Great to be with you again. So what do you have for us uh, this segment? Oh, I have a great selection of stories. Actually, um, I've I've put together some sets of stories because some of these Mm. seem to go together so well. And the first set I have for you is about virtual reality, which really is gathering steam in the last year. So the first is about the virtual reality uh, application that's debuting at London's Natural History Museum. So you're going to be able to put on a Samsung virtual reality gear headset and tour a prehistoric seafloor. So you can float above the seafloor and see a bunch of prehistoric uh, creatures swimming around you. And they're saying this is the first time VR has been used as a significant part of a museum project. You may or may not agree with that. 
And in terms of taking virtual reality and potentially museums out of the museum and into other places, uh, Brown University is unveiling this really incredibly cool virtual reality uh, experimental lab they're calling the yurt which is an immersive 3d virtual reality room which has state-of-the-art equipment and they're playing around with how people can use that for design and sharing and developing new applications so i was wondering what you guys thought about this emerging technology of virtual reality and how museums can be using it When I think about virtual reality in museums, I put them on a continuum with augmented reality, so both augmented and virtual reality, and I look at it from two perspectives. There's the me, we perspective. How much is it about something just for me, or how much is it about the we or the social? At the same time, I'm looking at it from the spatial perspective, the um, here, their perspective. How much is it about connecting with something that's around me right now, or how much is it about sending me somewhere else? So when I think about you know virtual reality, it's often about the there, sending me to some place like that's uh, from the the depths of someone's imagination, right, and taking me, transporting me from my current location, or if I'm at home, transferring me into a museum context. Mm-hmm. But being here at a museum, being at a place where we want people to come in and experience our collections and connect with the people they're with, I think anything that that connects that that grid that's about the here and the we, that's the right connection for museums and augmented and virtual reality. Elizabeth, what do you have for us next? Okay, well, I actually wanted to segue from that into another application of virtual reality, which is going someplace you can't get to. And in some cases, this may be museums. There was a story recently in the Wall Street Journal talking about virtual field trips, uh, in which I was quoted as saying something like, well, they're not my idea of a field trip, but it's better than nothing. <laughs> and indeed, if you can't get to a, to a museum physically, I suppose it is better than nothing, and maybe this is going to get more and more uh, effective. It certainly seems like we're we're creating a lot of uh, ways that are lower and lower cost to give people that experience. One of the things that Google's come up with that I think is so cool is what they're calling Google Cardboard, which literally is a template that you can make out of cardboard and, and drop a smartphone into that will take you on 3D virtual reality experiences, including the moon, which is what one story was about, but also... Um, also museums. So, for example, uh, they were saying that you could visit the American Museum of Natural History this way, Barry. Yeah, we saw our T-Rex in it. That was exciting. Yeah, yeah. So tell me about what you think about virtual reality. I I, I get what you're saying about the we experience being so important. But in terms of making museums accessible to people who can't necessarily get there, what do you think about this as a way of, of visiting if you can't physically get your feet in the door? I think that's certainly one piece that we should be thinking about, but it's certainly not the only option. So, for example, many of the things that we, and I don't think we're alone, are are thinking about is how do we prepare people before they come in? How do we prepare families? How do we prepare someone who's coming from, from out of the country? How do we prepare teachers who are coming with their students? And so if a teacher can show their students what it's like to be around that T-Rex and perhaps even just walk around that hall, um, my understanding is that a teacher can even design the experience to place different things in that virtual space so they can explore it. If that young person has had that physical sense of being here before they've come here, then when they get here, will they have a deeper and more enriching experience? And that's a question we should ask, but it's a question worth asking. So I find this interesting because we do um, what we call virtual visits at, at my museum. And I 
I think the idea of using virtual to just go around a museum is um, not not using the technology in the right way. I think the, the way to really think about this is how can you use technology to get at places that you're not normally able to see in a museum? And I think that's where it becomes a rich experience because um, for all our institutions, we can't take people behind the scenes to show them our collections and our research because it's, it's just a, it's a logistical issue. But I think you can use technology to make that very visible to um to anyone, and that could be students that are in your own city, or that could be students who are in a rural town who have no exposure to a museum or to the research happening at museums. And I think that's really uh, that's really the usefulness of these more virtual field trips, rather than just a, a tour of our halls. I would say. And if you don't mind, let me even add to it. So, if like the easy low hanging fruit is let's see that dinosaur in the hall, and the second thing that you're talking about is let's go back into the room where that dinosaur is being prepared being stored the next step is let's go back to mongolia or wherever it was that dinosaur was found and let's see what it looked like from the scientist's perspective when they were out in the field yeah that makes total sense it's that scaffolding of learning that we can we can give because we have the technology i'm always interested in the use of technology for accessibility so i was very interested to see a recent story about the prado which has created 3D printed copies of some of their most renowned paintings, so Goya, El Greco, so that blind people are encouraged to actually touch them. The, the article said that this is the only exhibit where the Prado has, disp- has installed dispensers for hand sanitizer and water dishes for seeing eye dogs. So with this as a jumping off point, I would just love to hear any comments or observations you guys have about technology that you feel has made particular advances in the field of accessibility for museum visitors. Yeah, I, I'm really I'm, I'm really interested in anything that gets people using more of their senses than just um, just just sight uh, or, or even just audio. So uh, while I understand that there's a there's obviously an explicit need for people with certain disabilities to be able to access the works who would normally get to access works, I think we all benefit from that, right? Uh, and in um, in our museum, we think a lot about like what are uh, specimens that aren't available but that can still be created as replicas that are touchable or done at scale that you would normally be able to access because it's a very small, but you could print out in a much larger version to see, like, the, you know, the, 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 the legs of a spider that you could touch or whatever. Um, so, uh, yeah, definitely anything that's uh, more tactile that is something that our museum is not very good at, honestly, and I think that a lot of other places, like Exploratorium, are, are, are really innovating in that space. So um, to the degree that we can be digitizing, scanning, and then printing out um, these really, really cool things so that lots more people can get them um, is super exciting. And then you can also make them available outside of your museum for other people who want to be able to use them in their classroom or use them at their science center once you've kind of created that artifact. I love this story because I think it's just... Oh, it's like the very essence of how, of technology, of, of the the possibilities of technology in a museum. And I think that's what's so exciting is that this is, I guess this is why I feel that I'm in the field that I'm in and why I love this field is because we get to take things and we're constantly thinking, how can we bring more people in? How can we, um, how can we, how can we make it more accessible? And it's just just so exciting to me to think that the, that art museums are, are pushing in that direction, too. So thanks, Elizabeth, as always, for bringing us these awesome 
shots views into the future for us to 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 think about and talk about. Um, so you can learn more about these stories and how to get your own weekly updates from uh, the show notes we're posting for these awesome dispatches. Thanks so much, Elizabeth. Thank you, Rick. Take care. Thanks, Elizabeth. See you next podcast. Yep. Next time. Rick and Barry, I, I can't believe it, but I think our time is up for today. I what? think uh, I know. I know. It's such fun. It's always hard to say goodbye. Um, but I love you, you guys. <laughs> But you can still continue to follow us um, and join into our conversation at our blog, which is objectoriented.info. And there you can find our podcast links, uh, episode-related information, discussion, and, of course, our past episodes. We always invite you to talk with us. You can follow us on Twitter at Oriented. Uh, so that's O for object and then oriented. Or you could follow us individually at Mushby. Mm-hmm. Three M's. Three M's. Three M's because one M was taken. Uh, and at Rick the Ranger and at Gauss Eve. If you have ideas for future episodes, please let us know. What does digital learning look like in a collections based museum? Oh, oh. Find out now on Object Oriented, the podcast.